I'm going to overwhelm you with information, and I'm sorry. I don't know how else to get through this. We're going to look at Mark 13. It's the longest sermon in Mark. It's all about the end times, which are massively confusing. Um, If you start tying in Revelation and Daniel and all of these different places in the Bible that talk about what's going to happen at the end when Jesus comes back. And so we're just going to try to cram it all in today. So if you're a guest, I apologize profusely. If you come here regularly, then I figure I get a pass every now and again. So we're going to dig in, starting in verse 1. As he was leaving, so that's Jesus. He's leaving the temple. One of his disciples says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? So this is the setup for everything that follows. They're leaving the temple. They look back. It's this massive structure that Herod has built, and they're just marveling at how grand it is, and Jesus says, it's all coming down. You're in Washington, D.C. on vacation, and you're standing looking at the White House, and somebody says, all of that is coming down. Not just what it means for that actual structure to be leveled, but what does it mean for our country? What's happened in our country that that building no longer stands? That's what these guys are hearing. They're tied to the land as a Jew, the land that, that is your inheritance from God, the temple, that's where God meets you. What in the world has happened if that thing is no longer standing? In your mind, the, the world, it's, it's done. We're done. The world is over in order for that to happen. So the disciples, they want to know, what's the sign? How do we know that that is going to happen? And what we read moving ahead in Mark is Jesus' answer to that question, particularly verses 5 through verse 23, Jesus is answering the question, this is how you'll know that temple is about to be destroyed. From verse 24 to 27, he's talking about some events that have not yet happened. For, for these four guys and for the first audience, Mark's audience, everything that we're about to read is prophecy. It's all predicting the future. It's all future stuff. None of it has happened. For us, the reason some of this stuff gets confusing is some of this prophecy has already been partially fulfilled. In the Bible, a lot of times prophecies have two fulfillments. There's a double fulfillment or there are two horizons. There's a short-term, very literal uh, fulfillment that has to do, it's a plan with a lowercase p. It's how God is working in one particular person's life or how he's working in one particular nation. And then there's a more distant um, symbolic fulfillment that has to do with God's plan with a capital P, how he's redeeming creation. Uh, Numbers 24 says this. A guy named Balaam has a prophecy, and he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. That's a country. The, um, The skulls of all those of Sheth. Edom, that's another country, will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Now that prophecy was fulfilled in the short-term, literal, little P way with David. King David did all of that. He conquered all of those people. It was fulfilled in a long-term, symbolic, capital P kind of way with Jesus. He's the king. He's the star that came 
from the house of David. There's another one in Isaiah 7. We're not going to take time to look at that, but it's one of our favorite kind of Christmas for unto us a child is born, kind of that whole idea. This virgin will be with the child, and this is the sign. And that actually has a very, that has a literal fulfillment within 12 years of when the prophecy was given to Isaiah. And then it has this long-term um, symbolic fulfillment in Jesus. So there's this, there's this pattern here, and what Jesus is doing is he's laying out a prophecy that has a literal, short-term, little p fulfillment in the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, and a long-term symbolic fulfillment in the capital P, God reconciling, redeeming the whole world. So try to hold on to both of those things. Now, as we go through this, again, it's a lot of material. I don't want you to get caught in the details. I want you to step back. Jesus is giving this message, and again, it's the longest sermon in Mark. It's important, and it's not important that we grab the details. There are these commands throughout. There's 19 different commands. We're not going to go through all 19, but there are commands throughout, and he's saying, this is how I want y'all to live in the midst of this time. And that's what's important. He's setting expectations for his followers. It's going to be difficult at times. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be turmoil. And in the midst of that, I have cert- there's, a, there's a standard. I have expectations for my people, and he's laying out what those expectations are. So that's what I want you to get to grab onto. I don't want you to get wrapped up in what 666 means or you know, when the rapture is going to occur. What I want you to do is hold on to the commands of Jesus. These are his expectations for us as his people. So pick up in verse 5. Jesus says to them, so remember, he's answering the question, how will we know when when all of this stuff is going to go down? Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will destroy, excuse me, will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So two things. He says, watch out that you're not deceived either by people or by events. People, we talked about that last week. We all need to be aware of the type of people who we tend to trust too easily. That's who's going to deceive you. The guy that you can see coming a mile away, he's not going to lead you astray. It's the type of person or the type of pitch that you tend to um, grab onto too quickly. That's who we, we, each of us needs to know what type of person tends to lead us astray because that's the way you will be led astray. The enemy's a smart guy. He knows your weaknesses. That's the kind of thing, that's the type of a lie he's going to send to you. What's going on here historically in the years from Jesus' death, 33 to 70 A.D., there are, all, there are several uh, messianic pretenders. Guys are coming to Jerusalem saying, I'm sent by God. I'm the one who's going to free us from this oppressive Roman rule. They all got killed. Well, most of them got killed. But it was easy for them to lead groups of particularly Jews astray. They're saying, we're the Messiah. We've got this problem. We're going to fix it. And particularly from 62 to 66 AD, there were a lot of revolts and uprisings in the city. So Mark is written to people in Rome, long way away from Jerusalem, and they're hearing these reports of what's going on in Jerusalem, and they're wondering, all right, there's all these uprisings, they're talking about war, is this it, is this the end? And what Jesus says is don't be deceived by these individuals, and don't be deceived by these events. The events are just birth pains. Many of you um, are moms, you get labor pains. Labor pains mean a baby is coming, but there's no clock to it. Some of you have labor pains for hours, some of you for days, some of you even weeks before your baby was due. You were having contractions. 
The contractions do mean something is coming, but you don't know when. And that's what Jesus is saying. All of these events, yes, they mean something is coming, but that you can't calendar that. You can't, there's no stopwatch that means, okay, there was an earthquake, so that was an eight magnitude, and so we're going to push the stopwatch, and we know in X number of days Jesus is coming back, or this temple is going to be destroyed. You can't do that. We live in a world, particularly the American church, where we want, we want to know. We're planners, we want, and we're smart. We want to figure everything out. And so people watch CNN or Fox News, whatever you prefer, and they try to read those events in light of the Bible. Well, this is what's going on, and this is how it lines up with biblical prophecy. And then we'll ask you for a little money at the end. But that's what people do. And we all can get, it's easy to get wrapped up in that stuff. And what Jesus is saying, don't. None of those things are uh, signals that the end is coming now. I'm 36 years old. In my 36 years, the Antichrist has been coming out of the Communist Party, USSR, all of that. He's been the head the Secretary General of the UN, he's been the head of the European Union, and he's been the 13th Imam from Radical Islam. In 36 years, we've had all of those. And everyone who says it, they are convinced, based on their reading of current events, that this is it. Taylor Swift is right. We don't know what we don't know. And that's, that's the problem with all of that for us. Some of you are going to be singing that song, aren't you? So that's the problem for us. We don't know what we don't know. If I'm living in the middle of the Cold War, the biggest, baddest thing out there is the USSR. It's communism, this brutal, atheistic regime. So it's easy for me. It's the Antichrist is going to be whoever's running that. Then the wall falls, and we say, oh, it's the New World Order, and the UN, and the Secretary General, and then, okay, it's not that, and the European Union is coming together, and there's ten countries, and Revelation talks about a beast with ten horns, and, oh, it's it, so whoever's the... And then September 11th, and what could be... Worse, what could be a greater enemy to Christianity than radical Islam? We don't know because we haven't lived through tomorrow yet. It's the signs don't, just don't. Don't get wrapped up in current events. Jesus says very clearly they're just birth pains. You don't want to be deceived. You don't want to be led astray. It's easy for us to pick at the guy, the, the family radio guy, back who said it's May 12th or whatever it was, May 19th. That's the end. Now he's, he's pushed his date to October. So we'll see how that works out for him, and it's easy to, to pick on those guys and say, y'all are silly. But within our circles, a lot of that same stuff goes on, and we don't want to be led astray. Here's a pastoral tangent I want to give you. That's cosmic, global thing. Personally, I would say, don't be led astray by circumstantial signs in your life. In the Christian world, we talk all the time about closed doors and open doors. It's very, if, if you live your life based on open doors and closed doors, you're going to wind up chasing your tail. There are times where God wants you to walk past an open door, and there are times he wants you to kick down a closed door. If you allow signs to dictate how you're going to move forward, it, it doesn't work. You can, most signs can only be understood in retrospect. It's only looking back that we can say, yeah, I could see the direction that that was pointed. I knew a guy, I think he was in college, he was making a decision on whether to propose to his girlfriend based on a billboard that he saw in Athens. Dumb. Dumb. No. It's the biggest commitment you're going to make to another person in your life. And you're going to base it on what some marketer put up on a billboard. No. That's not spiritual. It's silly. And I don't know how that makes the girl feel. Why did you propose today? Well, 
You might not make decisions, those type of decisions, but we do that all the time. Very important if you have a clear sense of what God has called you to. Very important that you have that. If you know in our vocabulary, if you know your deal, if you know the good works God has called you to, that will help you when it comes to these signs. You'll know what's something you need to pursue and what's not because it will line up with who God's created you to be and what he's called you to do. You need to have a sense of security when it comes to hearing God. And this is where a lot of us break down. We're confident that God speaks. We're not confident that we hear. You do. If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, Jesus says you'll know his voice. And we have to cultivate that sense of security so I don't need billboards to direct me because I recognize the Holy Spirit lives within me and he will direct me. And I'm confident that I can hear his voice, not because I'm great, but because I'm a child of God and I can trust him as a good father to be clear, just like those of you who are parents. You clearly communicate to your children what you want and expect. If not, that's on you. That's not on them. And God is a perfect parent. He's going to communicate clearly what he expects from us. And then last, we, we all need friends who are willing to tell us the truth. Somebody's got to be willing to tell you that you've got lettuce in your teeth. If not, you're going to go through life blind. We, and we want to be those kind of friends, not who just puff up, but who build up. We need to be willing to, sometimes we can get so lost in our own heads. You need somebody from the outside who can say, this is what I see. If I ever tell you, God's calling me to lead worship. For the love, somebody's got to say, he isn't. Unless maybe with puppets or mime or, it's not with, it's not vocally. I, I think I sound great. I'm tone deaf. So I think everybody else is off. But apparently that's not the case. We've got to have people who are willing to say those things to us and not just watch us crash and burn on our own. And you want to be that kind of friend. So back to Mark, verse 9. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what, you're to, what you are to say. Just say whatever is given to you. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Sometimes this whole thing about the end times, again, it all seems very global. And we don't necessarily know what our part to play in it. And here Jesus says very clearly, here's how this is going to impact you. Personally, we don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be led astray by pretenders or by current events. And I also want you to recognize the gospel, has, it's got to go out. It has to be preached to all nations. By the early 60s AD, the entire Roman world had heard the gospel. At that point, that was all they knew. So the gospel had been preached to all the nations at that time that they knew of. And this whole idea of persecution, you're going to be arrested. That happened to these guys, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, every one of them. They were arrested, they were tried, they were flogged. John was lived... Uh, the end of his life in exile, Peter was crucified upside down, James had his head cut off, and Andrew was crucified as well. These things that he said, this is going to happen, it happened for those guys. We don't live in a culture where that's even remotely a possibility. Nobody gets crucified anymore. And nobody gets crucified for being a Christian. We can't even fathom what would have to happen in our country for that type of thing to go on. And so it's easy to push that out and say that doesn't, apply anymore. But remember, there's this kind of these two windows or these two mountains. The first one, we see it's already happened in terms of fulfillment, and this next one's out in the future, and there could be a day where that type of thing is 
ask, maybe not of us as American Christians, but there are Christians around the world who face these choices on a regular basis. Joshua's talking about Colombia. I've heard of pastors in Colombia who are gunned down by guerrillas because they're standing up for freedom or gunned down by these drug cartels because they're getting people off drugs. Those guys have to make a choice. Am I with Jesus or am I not? It's interesting to me. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to give you these words to say. And to me, I'm thinking, all right, that means I'm going to get out. If I'm having this divine revelation and these powerful words from God that I'm supposed to say to these guys who arrest me, surely that's enough to convince them and to let me go. It didn't work for these guys. They got killed. That's not the plan that I'm looking for. But it's out there just because you've been faithful, which is what God expects of us. He's looking for faithfulness. He who stands firm till the end will be saved. That's what he's looking for from us. And just because you do that doesn't mean things are going to work out the way that we want them to, whether that's in terms of safety or prosperity or success or whatever. In the kingdom, obedience is success or faithfulness is success. God will vindicate us at the end. And short of that, we don't know how things are going to work out. A lot of times the results don't look good for us. So there's a, there's a personal cost there for us. There's also a, a, a kind of a personal investment, this idea of the gospel being preached to the nations. I saw uh, an article, and they said there's about 2.8 billion people, I think, who still there are in people groups that still have not heard the gospel. That's about a third of the people in the world. There are people within this room. There are people within the connections in this room who haven't yet heard the gospel in a way that they can understand and Jesus says it must be preached first. He's not coming back until everybody has a chance to hear. Some of you wonder, what about these folks who never hear the gospel? How's that fair? He says, I'm not coming back until they get a shot. And he works through his church, which is us. So for most of us, what that looks like, a small, small minority are going to go overseas and live. The majority of us are called to Marietta and Kennesaw and Ackworth and Smyrna, and our thing is to do our deal where we are. That's how you fulfill the good, great commission. What are the good works God has called you to do? And then go do those. And that's how you participate in the great commission. In your school, in your place of business, in your neighborhood, government, whatever your area is, doing those things that he's called you to do in those areas, that's how the gospel will be preached. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. It would be wonderful there if he would have given a little more explanation instead of just saying, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the road of his house, or on the roof of his house, excuse me, go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this will not take place in winter. In the winter there were floods. It would have been hard to leave. Because in those, in those days of distress, that word distress is, is the same word tribulation that you'll see in Revelation. Unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. So this is where things get a little squirrely. The disciples were asking for a sign, and this is the sign. 
this thing, this abomination that causes desolation, that's the sign. Jesus says, when you see that, you need to leave. Everything's about to come down. When you see that thing in the temple, it's time for y'all to flee. And they did. Over the, the two to four years uh, leading up to 70 A.D., tons of Jews left Jerusalem and hid in the mountains of Pella, which is what Jesus says, that's, that's what needs to happen. Y'all need to get out and get out fast. All this stuff about not getting a cloak and pregnant women and nursing mothers, what he's saying is it's going to be really, really bad, and you need to get out as quickly as possible. So that's the sign for them. And in 68 AD, there's a group of Jews called Zealots who took over the temple. They took up residence in the temple, and they desecrated it. They allowed murderers to walk on the Holy of Holies, which is only the high priest to go, and only once a year. That doesn't seem like maybe like a big deal or just walking in a particular place to us. But for the Jews, that was a scandal. That's where God met the priest, and you're allowing people who have murdered other folks into that place. They committed murder within the temple, and many of the Jews abandoned the temple. This abomination that caused desolation, it was this group of zealots who allowed that type of activity at the temple, and so the Jews themselves pulled out of the temple and said, I'm not having any part of this because of what's going on. The temple was desolate because the Jews had pulled out because of what was going, this abomination that was happening within it. And that all happened in, in 68 leading up to 70 A.D. You'll see that phrase, abomination that causes desolation, in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. That's where it originates. You can go back and look, and that gives you a fuller picture of that. For us, moving ahead, that literal fulfillment was what I just told you, these zealots that more... Uh, symbolic future fulfillment is the Antichrist. You can read about him in 1 Thessalonians 2 and in Revelation 13. We're not going to spend any time on that. I don't know who he is or she is. I know it's going to look, him, he's going to look a whole lot more like someone who's on the cover of a magazine than he is a dude with a pitchfork. That's not him. He's going to look, he's powerful politically, religiously, financially. He's going to look like someone who we all put up on a pedestal and say, you see that? That's the, kind of guy we, that's the kind of guy that we need. We've got problems and he can fix them. That's who the Antichrist is. It's, again, it's someone who is going to be uh, very well respected and he's going to get results on, on some pretty important matters if you understand Revelation. And everybody's going to say, that's the kind of guy that we need running the show because he gets things done in a good way. He's helping us. And, and people are going to throw their allegiance to him. Again, nobody's going to follow a guy with a pitchfork and horns coming out of their head. That's what we need to be aware of. So that's all moving forward. And what Jesus says is you need to flee. When you see that, get out of the way. And so for us, well, how do you flee? If you've read Revelation, the stuff that's happening there, how do you get away from that when you've got rivers turning into blood and sun falling out of the sky and locusts that sting and all this stuff that's going on. How do you avoid all of that? And there's really two schools of thought. One is called a pre-tribulation rapture. You may have heard of that phrase. So the tribulation is the seven years leading up to when Jesus returns. Now some people call it the great tribulation. It's supposed to be the most intense time in history. Lots of things are going on. Tribulation, that word means squeezing. Lots of squeezing. Lots of pressure. 
and it's for seven years. And what people think, some people think, well, before that happens, God is going to rapture the church. That means kind of being the church up to heaven. He's going to remove us from the earth so that we don't have to go through those seven years of distress. And wouldn't that be fantastic if that was the case? I don't believe that that is what's going to happen. You can think that, and that's wonderful. I actually hope you're right, because that works out well for me in the end. But I don't think that's the way things are going to play out. I believe what's called a post-tribulation rapture, which means we've got to live through it, and then we're going to meet Jesus when he comes. Let me give you just a little background on that. If you want to talk about that offline, I'd be more than happy to. Listen to this sequence of events. So this is Mark 13, verse 19. Because those days will be days of distress. I said before, that word is tribulation, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So that, to me, that is the great tribulation. If that's tribulation unequaled from beginning until now, all right, so that's where we're headed. So we've got this period. So that happens. And then if you skip down to verse 26, at that time men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So that's Jesus returning. And then verse 27, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. You heard that sequence, right? Great tribulation, then Jesus comes back, then gathering his people. To me, it seems pretty clear. 19 comes before 26, comes before 27. That's the sequence of events, the way these verses lay them out. I don't see evidence here for the church being raptured before this difficult time, there's one rapture verse in the Bible. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.16. This is what it says. Don't flip. The Lord himself will come down from heaven and listen to what's associated with that. With the loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is the only rapture passage in the entire Bible. The Lord will come back. There's going to be those things I said, the trumpet, the loud call, then the dead in Christ will rise first. That, that's it. That's the rapture passage. If, this, if you look in Matthew 24, I'll look. You don't have to. It says this. Jesus is coming back. He will send his angels with what? A loud trumpet call. We just saw that in Thessalonians. And they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. To me, the sequence is pretty clear. The one passage that talks about the rapture talks about this loud call and the angel trumpets and all of that stuff. And in Matthew, it says all of that occurs when Jesus comes back after the tribulation. Again, you can disagree with me. I don't think it's a deal breaker anyway. Again, I hope that you're right and I'm wrong. If I'm right and you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and you're wrong, then that could not be good for you. If what Jesus is looking for is people to be faithful to the end. If you're not ready for that, and it comes, you're going to think you got a bad deal. God, why is this happening to me? God, how come, every, how come this world literally is going to hell in a handbasket? Why is this stuff going on? It can cause you to really question your relationship with God. It causes you to question God's love, his power, his sovereignty, all kinds of things if you're not ready. Again, the worst thing that happens for me is I get a pass on seven years of difficulty. If I can be prepared for that time, again, the worst thing that happens is I don't have to live through it which to me is a smarter play than to hope I'm going to get beamed up beforehand and then I might not. I'm not making fun of people who believe in that. I don't want to make light of that. But again, to me, it doesn't. I don't see it 
biblically. I know some of you were probably raised in churches and may hold that very firmly, but I don't. Flip over to Revelation. I want you to see this. So this is Revelation 6. So there are these seals. John is having a vision, and things in Revelation 6 is when things start getting pretty murky. And there's a scroll, and the Lamb, who's Jesus, comes to take hold of the scroll, and he's going to open these seals. And it feels just like, it's like a sticker. It's not, but think about that. Seven stickers that are holding this scroll together. And they want to know, who can open these? Who can open this? And Jesus said, I can't. So he comes and takes the scrolls, and he starts popping these stickers off. And with each one he pops off, something happens. Let me tell you real briefly what's happening. He pops off the first one. And he said, he heard a voice say, come. It's the voice of the Father. He heard a voice like thunder say, come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, been on conquest. To me, that's the gospel. Almost every time in the Bible, white is a, it's a good color, not a bad color. And so this idea to me is Jesus said the gospel must first be preached. That's that first horse. The second one. He opens the second seal. Come, another horse comes out, a fiery red one. Rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. Third seal, come, there's a black horse, which is famine. Fourth seal, another horse, pale horse, uh, named, its rider was named Death, and Hades followed close behind. Then the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So those are the martyrs. And they called out, how long, Lord, uh, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth. When you see that phrase in Revelation, inhabitants of the earth, those are the bad guys. Those are people who are opposed to God. In Revelation, the line is very clear. You're in or you're out. Inhabitants of the earth are people who are opposed to God. And throughout the book of Revelation, they never repent. They never recognize their need for a Savior. They never recognize they're on kind of the wrong side of history. So how long until you judge them? And they were told to wait a little longer. My opinion, all five of those seals have already been opened. The gospel's already being preached. There's already famine. There's already death. There's already war. And they're already martyrs. And there have been. From Stephen was the first martyr a couple of years after Jesus. All of these things have been happening. It's how God works in the world to work salvation and judgment. That's what he does. So to me, everything that we read from verse 5, through verse through verse 13 it's already happened it's already happening all of those seals are opened this whole idea of the antichrist has not yet happened fully future and there but there will be a time of great tribulation leading up to all of that that we're going to have to live through so back to revelation the sixth seal the sun turned black the whole moon turned red, stars fall out of the sky, bad stuff. The sky recedes like a scroll, every mountain and island was removed, kings of the earth and princes are yelling, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So let me tell you a little bit about this, to me, how we get through the tribulation. That might be a scary thing for you if you ever looked at Revelation again. You're going, how in the world am I supposed to? I don't, I don't have it. I'm not going to make it, period. I need to die beforehand because I can't get through that, which totally, I, I'm in there. I'm a sissy. I don't see getting through a lot of this stuff. 
Look at verse uh, chapter 7. So after this, sixth seal is opened. That's called the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. We're going to look at that in a second. All of this stuff, everybody's saying, woe is me. Listen to what happens. Another angel coming, having the seal of the living God. So you can think of like a sticker. That's not what it is, but think of that, a sticker. And he says, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who've been given power to harm the land and the sea, which is we're about to see what happens. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Until every, every one of you who's following Jesus, you'll get a sticker on your head, which means you're marked for him. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. That doesn't mean 144,000 Jews. 144,000 is a symbolic number. It means everybody who's on the side of Jesus, everyone who's following him, not just Jews. This is the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, people who are following Jesus. And there's way more than 144,000 because you can see in verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. Do you see that? From one perspective, it looks like 144,000. From another perspective, it's a great multitude no one can count. It's the same crowd. It's a completed number. From one side, again, it looks like it's 144,000. 12,000 from 12 tribes. Perfect how that works out. From another perspective, it's a great multitude no one can count. That's the reality for us. It's all of us who are following Jesus. You all get the sticker on your head. Who are these people? These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. People who have gone, come out of the great tribulation, which means to me, we're going to be here during the great tribulation. Skip down. Opens the seventh seal in chapter 8. Then you start reading these things about trumpets. The first trumpet. A third of the earth was burned up. What did we just read? Don't harm the land until I put the sticker on them. Second trumpet. A huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. What do we read? Don't harm the sea until I put the sticker on them. Third angel. The rivers. Again, water. Fourth angel. It's the sun turning dark. Somehow, Jesus seals us through all of that. A picture. The plagues in Egypt. You have all read that in Exodus. So we have the people of Israel who are in Egypt. Egypt is a wicked empire. And God says, I'm going to judge them. He gave Pharaoh multiple opportunities to repent. Pharaoh said no. Shook his fist at God over and over again. The first plague is blood in the Nile, which is annoying. The second plague is, plague is frogs, which is disgusting. The third is gnats, which is annoying. But none of those are deadly. And then in the fourth plague, he says, in uh, I think it's chapter 8, verse 16, maybe 22, I'm going to make a distinction between Goshen, that's where the Israelites lived, that's where the Jews lived, and the Egyptians. I'm going to make a distinction between my people and everyone else. I'm going to put a sticker on my guys' heads and then read the plagues after that. The intensity goes way up, and his people don't experience them. Darkness, boils, locusts, livestock being killed, firstborn where the firstborn in every household in Egypt was killed. None of that applied to the Jews. Because God had put a sticker on their head said, these are my people. He didn't, he didn't remove them from Egypt. He sealed them through this tribulation that they had to experience. Imagine if you're on the front side of the Exodus and you're reading a prophecy of those events, of those ten plagues. You would think, my world is over. How am I supposed to live through that? 
We're reading it in retrospect, and we just blow through it. That's kind of where we are with Revelation. We read that and think, how in the world am I going to live through that? He's going to put a sticker on your head, and he's going to seal you through it. Now, in Revelation, there's a whole other set of bad things that's called the wrath of God. And we're saved from that. If you're a Christian, when we say, you've heard the phrase, I'm saved, what you're saved from is the wrath of God. Romans 5 says we're saved from the wrath of God through him, through Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. I don't have to experience the wrath of God. And as you get deeper into Revelation, you'll see more and more it's his wrath that's being poured out on the inhabitants of the earth. And if you're a follower of him, you've got the sticker on your head. You have to go through tribulation you don't have to experience the wrath because you've been saved from that. The last three trumpets, it says, what does it say? Let me find it. Woe, it says, woe, 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 triple woe, because the wrath of God is being poured out on the inhabitants of the earth. If you read in chapter 16, there are these seven bowls that are, what happens is just awful. And it says these are the bowls of the wrath of God. God's wrath is not it's not mean. It's his righteous response to wickedness and evil. And if he's going to recreate the world, he's got to get rid of everything that opposes him. And that's what's going on in Revelation. He's getting rid of everything that opposes him. Every consequence of sin is being dealt with. So he can ha- create, recreate this perfection for his people to live in. And what Jesus says is you've got to flee from that. When you see this abomination, you've got to run because it's going to be bad. For us, we don't run to a different place geographically. We run to him. Jesus is our refuge. If you're following him, you're safe from the wrath of God. If you're not, for the love, why not? Why Don't. Don't. Experience that on your own. Flee to him. He's a refuge for you. He's a sanctuary. In him, you don't have to face any of that stuff. His wrath poured out on the inhabitants of the earth. That's not the side of the fence that you want to be on. There are all kinds of people out there waving signs. He says false Christ who are saying, hey, come try this, try this. You don't have to leave the city. Let's rebuild this city. We've we got to fight for this temple. Jesus says, no, you abandon it. Get out of there. And what he's, We have people all the time. There's multiple ways. There's more ways to heaven than just Jesus. That's exclusive. That's bigoted. Here, try this. Try this. Be a good person. Go to church. Whatever. No, don't let any of that deter you. It's relationship with him. That's what saves you from the wrath to come. Verse 24. We're about to wrap. In those days, following that distress, so following the tribulation, this is what happens. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We just read that. That's the sixth seal being opened up. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So Jesus is coming back, and what's he going to do? He'll send his angels, gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. That's called the day of the Lord. It's not 24 hours. It's a period of time when Jesus comes back and he cleans everything up. He writes every wrong. He... He fixes everything, cleanses the world of wickedness, rewards the righteous, recreates heaven and earth. That's what's going on there. Again, a lot of what you see in Revelation is the negative side of that. It's 
his judgment upon the wicked, him cleansing the earth so it can be recreated for us to live on. Verse 28, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know it's near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Confusing. There have been lots of generations since he said this. What Jesus is referring to here is the destruction of the temple. He's gone back to their original question about how do we know when this temple is going to fall apart. And he says, when you see this abomination, no, it's going to happen within this generation, within 40 years. He made the prediction in 33 A.D. By 70 A.D. it was done. It was within the time frame. And that's what he's talking about. He's telling them, you can know for certain during your lifetime this is going to happen. For us, these verses all passed. Verse 32, it should start with the word but. It's not in there. It's in there in the original language. But no one knows about that day or hour. He's making a contrast between the destruction of the temple and his return. Just like you can know for sure when this is going to happen, when this temple is going to be destroyed. You can know that, but in contrast, but no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. That, that day, that refers to when Jesus returns. Be on your guard, be alert, you don't know when that time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. So keep watch, because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back. In the evening, or at midnight, when the rooster crows, or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. What he's saying there, you can't, it's not just that you don't know when I'm coming back, you can't know. Just like a servant, you don't know when your master's coming home. He didn't tell you. You're not gonna, he's going to come home when he comes home. Your deal is to be ready. And that's the same thing for us. It's not just that we don't know, we can't know. If Jesus doesn't know, we're not going to figure it out. It's not going to happen. So stop trying to calculate. Just be ready. What does he say? Everyone has an assigned task. You've got a responsibility. I have a responsibility. I need to be faithful to that responsibility. So if he comes back today or tomorrow or in 30 years or in 300 years, I'm, I'm okay. Because he's looking for people who will be faithful to the end. So my job is to be faithful until the end. God, what do you want me to do? That's what I'm going to do. Period, dot, the end. That's all you need to know. You don't have to figure out if you've got the mark of the beast and whether you can use a barcode. You don't need to figure out who the Antichrist is. None of that stuff. You don't need to try to figure out with what's going on in the Middle East and how that ties into Ezekiel. That's all... That's stuff that just gets in the way. It distracts us. It leads us astray. What you need to know, what has God called you to do? Why are you here? What has he given you? The talents. What talents has he given you? Opportunities, gifts, skills. And what are you doing with those things? Are you being faithful so when he returns, you can say, hey, I was doing my job. That's what he's looking for from us. Vigilance. Just, or faithfulness. That's a better word. Faithfulness doing our jobs. Let's pray. So two things. One, if you're going to be faithful to your assigned role, obviously you have to know what your role is. And that's where some of us get hung up. We don't know. You might be busy doing all kinds of stuff, but you're not sure that any of it 
is really what you need to be doing. Does any of this really have any eternal value? Is any of this kingdom work? Or am I just shuffling deck chairs around? Step one, do you know what God has called you to? Do you know in our language? Do you know what your deal is? Do you know what the good works God created in advance for you to do? Do you know what those things are? And the second, if you know what they are, are you doing them today? With your spouse, with your kids, at work, in your school, your neighborhood. Yes or no? No guilt, no fear. You don't need to read Revelation and get scared. It doesn't work. Fear is a terrible motivator. Do you know what your deal is? And are you being faithful? God, my prayer for every man and woman in here today is that we would know. We would know what you've called us to. For some people, they're desperate to know. They've been asking and they don't, they don't feel like you're telling them anything. And Lord, my prayer for those is that you would speak maybe in a new and clear way. I'm going to pray this, and if this is you, you can just kind of say yes in your heart. It's not weird, but you can just kind of say yes in your heart. My prayer, God, for people who maybe are struggling, really knowing what you're calling them to, is that you would give them a dream in the next week. They might not have ever had a dream from you, but my prayer is that when their mind is not working, God, that you would be able to speak more clearly to them, kind of when the defenses are down, that they would have a dream this week that would provide some clarity for them on what you're saying to them. And I pray they'd know that the dream is from you. God, for the others who, the rest of us who do know, we're not sure that we're being faithful. God, you ch- what do we need to be doing today? What does it look like? If you were to come back today, would you say, absolutely, you're doing exactly what I assigned you to do? Or would you say, not so much? We want to be in the exactly category. So help us with that this morning. Show us what we need to do and then give us the grace to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand up. We're going to close with a worship song.